0: Deconstruction, a podcast from Phi, Philosophy and the History of Ideas research team at Deakin University, Australia. Welcome to Deconstruction. I'm Patrick Stokes. We hope you're keeping safe and well during these very strange times of COVID-19. We could all do with a little bit more hope right now. And to that end, we'd like to share with you last year's Max Charlesworth lecture given by Professor Robert Stern from the University of Sheffield. On the topic of hope without God, is hope a secular virtue? Good. Um, So the topic of my talk is going to be is hope of secular virtue and the reason i raise that question is because uh, there can be some doubt about the matter so from early on in the history of thinking about hope and discussing hope we have uh, pandora's box or jars i think it should more, more technically be and as you'll probably know pandora releases all these terrible things out into the world and hope um remains trapped in the lid of the jar and stays in the jar that might make you think that hope is a good thing uh, because what we get left to us to fight all these terrible evils is hope Um, hope is on our side hope is something that we can use against these evils Uh, But, of course, you can also ask the question, well, if hope is so great, what's it doing in the jar in the first place? (laughs) After all, this is meant to be a jar of evils, and if hope is so wonderful, it shouldn't be there. Um, And uh, Hesiod, who writes about this in Works and Days, uh, makes pretty clear that in the end he he thinks hope is a bad thing rather than a good thing. And the sort of bad press for hope or the equivocal view of hope continues in the tradition on this. So I'm sure you will all know Pope's famous line from an essay on man, hope springs eternal in the human breast. So there you might think that sounds pretty good. Uh, That sounds a fairly positive thing to say, but then you get the second more crushing line, man never is, but always to be blessed. So we might think that things are going well and you might be hopeful, but in fact, it's never gonna work out. Quite like that. And then, if you look at other figures, you get uh, more clearly uh, negative views of hope. For example, Byron, but what is hope? Nothing but the paint on the face of existence. The least touch of truth rubs it off. Then we see what a hollow cheeked harlot we've got hold (laughs) of. Or Nietzsche, hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. And the French uh, playwright, ennui, la Salle espoir, dirty hope. So hope does not have a particularly good reputation, if you listen to these uh, uh, authorities. So one can ask of it is it a virtue or perhaps even is it a vice or perhaps it's neither of those things just a feeling or a sentiment but not to be thought of as either virtue or vice so i'm going to argue that hope is a virtue but with a kind of difference it's not if you like a straightforward virtue in the way that others are but i think in the end we should think of it as a virtue. So what is a virtue? Well, from the classical Greek standpoint, uh, there are three main features of what makes something a virtue. First of all, it's good for the possessor. If you have a virtue, it is good for the person who has that virtue. For example, if you think of courage, Courage is a virtue. It's a good thing for you to have. Why? Well, you don't want to be a feeble, pathetic character who feels quaking every time something bad happens, but you don't want to be a foolhardy character who just rushes off and gets killed at the first uh, opportunity. You want courage, um, which is good for you by giving you the right balance of action. And in particular... Uh, A virtue will get you to see the world in the right way, how things are around you, theoretic reason, and then lead you to act in the right way in those circumstances. So that's one feature of virtue. It's good for the possessor. Again, traditionally, it stands between two corresponding vices. So this is Aristotle's well-known golden mean. Uh, the virtue stands between two corresponding vices. So in the case of courage, it's uh, cowardice on the one hand or foolhardiness on the other. And thirdly, on the classical view, virtue is something that can be cultivated. You can... Uh, make yourself more virtuous in various ways. So if you're a bit of a coward, you know, well, you can kind of take some therapy classes or you can put yourself in conditions that make you feel cowardly and you know, teach yourself how to get over it and be more confident and to have more courage and so on. So virtue is something that you can instill, at least to some extent, in yourself. Although, of course, you will require some the right social conditions to make that possible so that's briefly put the classical view shall we say so we take that classical view um, is hope a virtue on these criteria well if you look at the classical tradition uh, by and large the answer is no I mean it's a bit more complicated than that but simplifying a little, that is roughly what one gets. So if you think of Aristotle, who's, if you like, the prime proponent of the virtue tradition, Aristotle doesn't treat hope as a virtue, in fact, although he does relate it to courage. So courage is a virtue, and hope may be helpful in that regard to some extent, but he doesn't call it a uh, a virtue. Plato, again, in various places, characterizes hope as something that, again, can uh, be damaging to the possessor, for example, by making you more gullible. If you're a sort of hopeful, cheerful kind of person, you may fall for stuff that, uh, if you were less hopeful, you would rightly avoid. And the Stoics don't like it because, in their view, you should be focusing on the present. And uh, hope is a forward-looking way of thinking. If you're hopeful, you're always looking at the future. But if you're a Stoic, that's the wrong place to be looking. You should be focusing on the present. So for the Stoics, too, for slightly different reasons, hope is not a virtue. So that's the uh, sort of overall view of some classical treatments of hope. But looking at it in a little more detail and thinking about how we characterized virtue before. Uh, How can we see whether virtue uh, fits the criteria that we introduced earlier on? Well, uh, in the first case, the first criterion was whether or not hope is good for the possessor. And you might think, looking at the uh, figures we've already discussed, that it's not going to be good for the possessor. First of all, because if you have hope, your theoretical reason may be deceived by encouraging you to be too optimistic. So this is the sort of sports fan problem. Uh, you're hopeful every season that your team is going to win. Uh, but you know to everyone else, you're clearly just an idiot. Uh, and you're just deceiving yourself yet again. Uh, But therefore, it may also deceive your practical reason into making the wrong practical judgments. You may buy that season ticket yet again, uh, even though uh, any sensible person would tell you not to. So it doesn't look like it's a virtue because it may well be bad for the possessor. Secondly, it's not clear that it stands between two vices. So we said courage is a kind of classical case of virtue because it stands between cowardice and foolhardiness. What about hope? Well, if you are going to put hope within a pairing, uh, I guess the thing that you might most obviously think of is despair on the one side and some kind of foolish optimism on the other. So Peter Geach, 20th century philosopher, says, it is easy to explain what role the virtue of hope may have. If attainment of man's chief end is possible, but arduously difficult, we need a virtue that preserves us alike from a factuous presumption that blinds us to the difficulties and dangers of the path and from despair that would make us give up Lie down and miserably perish. So, in that way, Geach puts hope between, if you like, two virtues: fatuous presumption on the one hand, or optimism and despair on the other. But the trouble with that view is that you might think, in certain certain circumstances, it's right to feel despair. After all, we're trying to put. Virtue between two vices, but if one of the vices is despair, the problem is that despair may not look like a vice. So think of this example. Um, I don't know if you've seen or read the book, the uh, um, Cormac McCarthy book, and then a film. Uh, And I don't want to give away too many plot spoilers, because I highly recommend seeing it, though it is listed as one of the 10 most depressing books and films ever made. (laughs) Uh, But after all, we're talking about hope. But at a crucial point in this basically post-apocalyptic tale, uh, you have two figures who are the parents of a boy. And the figure on the left is the father, and we never know their names, Uh, but the father, despite the terrible world in which they are living, uh, insists on trying with the boy to uh, leave uh, where they are living and go south, go to the sea, uh, somehow in pursuit of a better world, although it's not at all clear why uh, the south and the sea would be a better world, but that is what the father sets out to do. But before he sets out, we also see the mother. uh, And the mother says that the thing to do here is for us all to commit suicide. Uh, Because we are living in such a terrible world, and it is indeed a terrible world, as you see with the rest of the film, that the only rational thing to do is to despair and to end it all now. And that's what she says. Uh, she advises or or wants uh, the whole family to do, including her son and husband. Uh, The father refuses to do this. um, And so in the end, she does it and leaves them on their own. And then the rest of the film carries on. Now, I think one of the things the film is asking is who's rational here, the father or the mother? Uh, And given the conditions, which I won't for labor, but as I said, it's one of the 10 most depressing films ever made. Given the conditions, it's not at all clear that she's not the right thinking person here. And if that's right, then despair doesn't look like a device. Despair in certain conditions looks like the right thing to do, which is what she does. Then the third issue was, can hope be cultivated? That was the third feature of a classical feature of virtue, that you can instill it in yourself, at least to some degree. Is that something you can do with hope? And I think there's a thought that you can't instill it in yourself because, in a way, it's sort of self-undermining. So if you're in a really bad situation and you're saying to yourself, I really must be more hopeful here, it's likely to make you less hopeful, because it's going to make vivid to you how bad things really are, right? So it's not at all clear that you can instill hope in yourself in in any straightforward way. And again, that's not unusual. So love, arguably, is another kind of case where you can't instill love in yourself. Arguably. Right. So, you know, this is the trouble with being a teenager or whatever. You can't make yourself love someone and you can't insist that somebody make themselves love you. It kind of doesn't work like that. Right. So it's not unusual. But if that's right, again, it makes hope unlike a classical virtue. Don't worry, this is fine. This is fine. Mm. Okay, so that's, if you like, the classical secular tradition. Suppose now we turn to the theological tradition. Here, hope is seen as a virtue, and it's seen as a virtue um, alongside faith and love. So Although Augustine himself doesn't actually speak of hope as a virtue, but as a gift from God, Aquinas does, and he uses virtue language partly because he's trying, if you like, to unify a a Christian tradition with a more Aristotelian one, and so uses the language of virtues within a Christian framework. And so Aquinas speaks of hope as a theological virtue. What makes hope a theological virtue, not a secular moral virtue or the cardinal virtues like prudence, justice, courage and temperance? Well, because of its distinctively theological nature. So the object of hope is God or some God-related events like the second coming or eternal life. What you're hoping for is not anything secular, so that's one reason it's a theological virtue. The ground of hope is also different. The ground of hope is belief or faith in God. And the source of hope is different. Hope is infused in us by God through grace. And that obviously differs from the more secular picture of hope in general, and makes hope, uh, sorry, virtue in general, and makes hope a distinctively theological virtue. So this is Aquinas citing the definition usually given of virtue, so he's not offering this virtue, this definition himself, but he's citing um, uh, what he seems to take to be a standard definition of virtue. A virtue is a good quality of the mind by which one lives righteously, of which no one can make bad use, and which God works in us without us. So if you take um, Aquinas's picture in a theological framework, hope can be considered a virtue. It in a way fits. three classical uh, criteria of virtue but it does so in a theologized way so on this picture first of all uh, hope is going always to be good for the possessor because the object of hope is God and in relation to God it can never be right to replace hope with despair although on this tradition, it may be that to have the right kind of hope about God, you have to have gone through despair, which is why hope differs from kind of foolish optimism. I mean, I think that's partly what people mean when they talk about hope against hope. You'll sort of fully realize how bad things could be, but you still um, end up hoping. Secondly, on this theological account, hope does stand between two vices because you might think it's, as it were, presumptuous to do more than hope in relation to God. You can't be certain about what God is going to do. That would make you, put you on a par with God. But obviously you shouldn't despair either. So hope looks like it has the right position between two corresponding vices. But again, because it's being thought of in a theological way. And thirdly, we have a sort of answer to the problem of the fact that we can't cultivate hope, because on this theological view, um, hope is a matter of grace. Um, and therefore it isn't to be expected that you can yourself cultivate hope. As Aquinas says God works in us without us hope is something that God gives us but without us having to do anything uh, to get it. So you can see in a way how given a theological structure hope makes some kind of sense but of course we are working within a theological structure what happens if we move then from the theological to the secular suppose we move from this theological framework back to a more secular one how should we think about hope as a virtue then should we reject it for the reasons given previously or can we make sense of it as a virtue? Jack, can you just remind me when I meant to finish? 16. Oh, great. Thank you. So let's go back to the three issues raised previously and consider each of them in more detail. But using the theological structure that I would uh, sketched, um, provide us with some further context and take them in a different order so the three issues we raised was can hope be cultivated and it seemed that it couldn't is hope always good for the possessor and how does hope stand between two vices so let's look at the first one cultivating hope So we said, in a way, this isn't a problem from the theological perspective, (coughs) because on the theological perspective, you're not expected to cultivate hope, because hope is a matter of a gift from God. It works in us without us. It's given to us. So you might think the theological tradition isn't really going to help us in a more secular context with this problem. But actually, it's not quite so clear because within the theological tradition, it's a very contentious question exactly how passive uh, the reception of these virtues is. I mean, from the quote I gave previously from Aquinas, you might think it's wholly passive. Uh, God works in us without us we do nothing we are just given the virtues but in fact uh, as many of you I'm sure will know the story isn't quite as simple as that uh, that there is even within the theological tradition the idea that uh, the the person who receives these virtues does something it's not an wholly passive picture and this is the difference of the mark between so-called infused and cooperative virtues infused virtue that conception would be wholly passive as it suggests but there's also a notion of cooperative virtue that yes uh, god does a lot of the work but we also do something <laughs> And this leads to the absolutely central Reformation debate, again as many of you will know, between justification through grace and justification through works. It's precisely because for Luther the, the, the uh, uh, Thomistic tradition allows some room for the agent in acquiring these virtues that it involves what Luther calls an element of justification through work. There's something we do to acquire these virtues. Of course, God does most of the work, but we do something. And for Luther, this is what makes the Catholic tradition problematic and, indeed, guilty of Pelagianism, the heresy of Pelagianism which is that it isn't all God's work. To some extent, it's our work. Now, this is a a massive and hugely complex debate, which I don't really want to get into here. All I want for our purposes to note is that even within theological tradition, the question whether you can cultivate hope, even as a theological virtue, is a live one. Uh, is it a wholly passive? Is hope something that's uh, entirely something given to the possessor? Or is it something that, even in the theological tradition, the possessor has to, uh, to some extent at least, bring about in themselves? Now, as I said, within the theological tradition, uh, Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, so thinking that we do something but not everything, are heresies, um, and therefore highly problematic within the theological tradition. But as I said, I'm not not trying to think of hope uh, within the theological tradition. I'm trying to think about what can we learn about hope by taking the theological tradition into account. And I think what we can learn from this debate is perhaps that the distinction between wholly active and wholly passive when it comes to acquiring a virtue is too strong a distinction. Uh, It may not be as straightforward as that. It may not be wholly active or wholly passive. (laughs) And somebody who's developed this idea, again, within a secular context it's a woman pictured here, Beatrice Hampile, who's at the University of Essex. And I should say, Beatrice and I will spend a lot of time talking about uh, these issues. And uh, she had certainly some hand in helping me think about this paper. And Beatrice has a nice idea um, that I think is helpful here, which is what she calls mediopassivity. And the easiest way to think about mediopassivity is to think about sleep. I hope you're awake enough to do that at this point. So if, like me, you're a bit of an insomniac, you will know that the worst thing you can possibly do when you're trying to sleep is to will yourself to sleep. Because if you do that, uh, that's just a recipe for staying awake all night. However, it's not clear that sleep is wholly passive. I mean, sometimes it is, right? You just go to bed, you fall asleep. But sometimes we do the things that, you know, people encourage in song like me to do, which is to sort of let yourself go to sleep. Uh, don't fight it. Let yourself go. Now, that notion of letting yourself go has a mediopassive uh, aspect in the sense it's somewhat active but somewhat passive, right? It's not like I haven't willed myself to sleep. It's not wholly active. But on the other hand, I've kind of done something, right? When I wake up in the morning and having slept, I think, yeah, good on me, right? I give myself some credit because I've sort of done the right thing. Somehow i got lulled myself into sleep. I did something, right? So that looks like it's a middle ground between the active and the passive. And in a way, that's something we can learn from the theological debate over whether or not uh, hope is something wholly passive, wholly given to you by God, or something that you have to somehow bring to yourself, even though it also comes from God at the same time. And so as a model of thinking about uh, a kind of agency in relation to hope, this idea of mediopassivity seems a promising one. So the problem was that hope isn't a classical virtue because you can't just will yourself to hope. Fine. But even if you can't will yourself to hope, there's some other level of agency, a kind of letting hope happen to you, which is still a form of agency uh, that makes sense in this context. So that's the first issue. How do you cultivate hope that uh, one can learn something, I think, from the theological uh, tradition? What about the second problem? Is hope good for the possessor? And the worry here, which I illustrated by reference to the uh, mother in the road, is that it could be better for a person to feel despair in some situations. And if it's better to feel despair rather than hope, then it looks like hope is not good for the possessor. Well, why is it better? Why might you see or read the book or see the film of The Road and think um, somehow the mother is a better character, a better person than the father? Well, you might think that the mother is really facing up to the problems that she's in. The father, you might think, is just foolishly optimistic um, about how things are in their world Uh, he's just discounting all the really serious difficulties that they face in that world and so you might think well she's better than the father because she's less self-deceiving she's really faced up to the difficulties that uh, lie in front of them and secondly you may think she's therefore better than the father (laughs) because she's more likely to get to grips with the situation in the right way. She's likely to act better than the father will, because she really has faced up to the situation. She's really addressing the problems that, that, um, that, that face them, and is making, therefore, the right use of her practical reason. So that's why hope in certain situations, might look bad for the possessor. But again, have we learned something from the theological tradition that might help us with this problem? Well, in the theological tradition, Mm -hmm. hope is not, as it were, easy. The way in which hope is discussed is not in such a way as to lead you to neglect reasons for despair, but to incorporate those reasons within what is sometimes called mature hope. So not a kind of self-deceiving optimism. And one person, again, who offers that view within the theological tradition is luther and luther contrasts what he calls the theology of glory which again he sees as sort of uh just a blind self-confidence that god uh, will save us from what he calls the theology of the cross well as the name suggests the theology of the cross is not kind of all sweetness and light. Uh, It is a facing up to uh, the real difficulties, if you like, of faith and sin and our relation to God. So but nonetheless, out of that uh, despair comes a kind of mature hope, a mature kind of religious hope. And you can see that view also reflected in the work of saint Kierkegaard, in the 19th century in this rather nice passage so Kierkegaard says the celestial bodies for example hover in space by means of a great weight the bird flies by means of a great weight the light hovering of faith is precisely by means of an enormous weight the higher soaring flight of hope is precisely by means of hardship and the pressure of adversity. (coughs) So real hope is not sort of cheery, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed optimism. Everything is wonderful. Uh, Isn't this a great place to be? It's a a hope that's been... uh, that's gone through despair, but somehow come out the other side. So the flight of hope is way down or is balanced by despair just as a bird is balanced by gravity and so on. Now, uh, sorry, did I skip on? Yeah, oops, sorry. Uh, where am I? It's gone a bit. Right. Um, so, in that case, we said in the in the case of. Um, so, let me just check I'm in the right place. Yeah. Uh, we said in the case of the road that uh, the mother, if we think of her, as facing up to the difficulties looks like uh, uh, she's being more rational than the father. But if we allow for this notion of um, mature hope, then the person who has this kind of mature hope can face up to the difficulties in which they are. Uh, They are not just ignoring, in a blithely optimistic way, the realities that surround them. But then, of course, the question is, well, look, if one does hereby face up to the difficulties, um, the reasons for despair, why should you ever hope? Why isn't the right thing to do to succumb to despair? If we're saying that mature hope is hope that really faces up to the problems that you're surrounded by, why, again, isn't the mother right to move from any notion of hope to just despair? <laughs> now, in a theological framework, this isn't, as it were, a problem because hope is also linked to faith, which is already, in some sense, beyond theoretical reason, uh, That if you have faith, you've already gone beyond what you have reason to believe in some sense. And you can base your grounds for hope on that. But we're not working within a theological uh, structure. So how can we think of hope as a virtue then? Why isn't it always better for the agent who is in really difficult circumstances to despair rather than hope? Well, my response to that question is to link um, the idea of agency with the idea of hope. And here is the, the thought that to give up hope and to despair is to abandon agency. (coughs) And here's my argument for that. To despair is to hold that there is no good to be attained. Secondly, it's therefore to hold that there is no reason for acting. But thirdly, to see that you have no reason for acting is to abandon agency. So insofar as one is an agent, it is necessary to hope rather than despair. If you replace hope with despair, you give up agency. And in a way, you can see this in cases of, for example, extreme depression, Um, because depression is a kind of despair. But depression also leads to a loss of agency. Why? Well, because the depressed person sees no good to be attained by their actions. And in those circumstances, there is no point acting. You just uh, lose uh, any agency. Now, in that sense, I think there's a way in thinking of thinking that the question, should I hope or despair, isn't really a question. (laughs) Um, Because, in a way, you don't have any choice as an agent but to hope. (laughs) Because if you go for despair, you are giving up your agency. It's not something you can intelligibly opt for. So in a way, as an agent, you must hope. And so the question, should I hope, is it good or bad for me, is a kind of idle question. Because you can only ask, should I do something, if there's some possibility of not doing it? Should I have? this extra slice of toast for breakfast, well, that makes sense because I can avoid having that extra slice of toast for breakfast. But if, as an agent, I must necessarily hope, the question whether I should hope, whether it's good or bad for me, doesn't seem to arise. And conversely, it seems you don't really need a reason to hope, Um, because insofar as you're an agent, and face conditions of uncertainty, you hope. But that may just seem silly, right? That may seem a foolish philosopher's argument, um, because you might be thinking of the character from the road, the woman from the road. In her case, hope, might get in the way of suicide, and in that situation, she may well be right that death is better than life. So it would be better for her to despair, give up hope, and commit suicide. The father, uh, precisely because he feels hope, doesn't opt for suicide and, Far as things look, at least at the beginning of the film, uh, is going to be worse off than the mother. But I think there is a response to this. Again, you may think this is also a foolish philosopher's argument. But it's that suicide itself involves using agency to end agency, because you're hoping that it will be better to be dead than alive. So you're still using hope. You couldn't even act to commit suicide unless you had the hope that by doing so, it would make your life better. Because, as I've said, you only act if you have some hope of the good. If you genuinely felt despair rather than hope, you would just simply cease to act at all, even cease to act to commit suicide. So while it may well be better in certain circumstances to die than to live, it's impossible to attain even this good without hope, as without hope, you cease to be an agent at all. And in fact, in the book, the mother Seems to agree, <laughs> or at least what she says is, as for me, my only hope is for eternal nothingness, and I hope for it with all my heart. That's how she enables herself to act, by having hope. Of course, it's not a hope for this life, as it were. It's not a hope that the world in which she's living is going to get better anytime soon. That would be a foolish hope to have. But it is a hope for something. And without that hope, it seems she couldn't act at all. So it can never be rational for the agent to think that there is no attainable good. And so it's never rational for the agent to despair rather than hope. But suppose theoretical, reason told you that the good is impossible to attain, it seems like you can't hope for the impossible. Suppose you were in a world that was so bad that the good seemed impossible. Well, I think if there were such a world, then again, hope might have to uh, come to an end. But we never live in such a world because we're always looking to the future. And we can never be certain how the future is going to be. The future always has some possibilities within it. And so to that extent, you can't be in a world where the good is impossible. So that's my answer to the second problem uh, is hope good for the agent the answer is yes because you can't be an agent without hope and then finally the question about hope standing between two vices the problem with that we said was that it doesn't look like hope stand between two vices because sometimes despair is good. But if what I've just been saying is right, that's turned out to be wrong, right? Uh, Because despair isn't good. In fact, it isn't something we can fully endorse. If by despair, we mean giving up hope entirely. Because as you saw from my previous argument, uh, we need hope to be agents at all. So, we can put despair in our spectrum of vices and put it at the bottom, as it were. But note here, I'm talking about despair or hope in a very general sense. I'm not saying that you should never despair about specific things. So, I'm talking about what's sometimes called basal or fundamental hope, not hope or despair about specific actions. So I am right to despair that I will ever learn to play the piano. right? I'm not saying that I should always retain that hope, despite the repeated evidence that it's never going to happen. Right? So I'm not saying you should never despair about anything. <laughs> I'm saying that you, sh- you shouldn't have or can't have despair across the whole. And in fact, despair in some cases may be good precisely because it helps you focus your agency on the things that you can achieve. So that's why, again, in the suicide case, it could be right to despair about the time um, after when I plan to commit suicide, as that may help me focus my agency on committing suicide. So the mother does despair about the future. And in a way, that's what she may be right about. But that uh, isn't complete despair, because as we've seen, it gives her, her hope that um, her suicide may lead to something better. So is hope a secular virtue? I've argued yes in relation to the three issues that we've had we, we uh, set up as problematic for it being a virtue. First of all, can is it something you can instill in yourself? Uh, the answer was perhaps yes in this mediopassive way. Secondly, is it good for the possessor? And um, this the argument was well, an agent has to have hope to be an agent at all. So to that extent, it's good for the possessor. Um, And thirdly, does it stand between two vices? Well, yes, because despair does turn out to be a vice, at least in the general sense of uh, total despair. finally let me end with a picture i hope you can see this uh, so last christmas i was doing that desperate christmas dad thing of looking for a present for my daughter in a department store and amazingly enough i came across this jar renewed hope in a jar it's called and it's by a company that makes cosmetics that is bizarrely called philosophy uh, and there are many ironies about this jar. One is that it's a jar at all, uh, because of, you know we can think of Pandora. The philosophy is live with optimism, renew with hope. Uh, so it's kind of got the optimism hope distinction a little bit confused. But the most kind of thing that, in a childish way, amuses me is it's for demonstration only. <laughs> So to get this hope, you have to pay real money and get the real thing. Uh, you can't just pick it up in a jar. No. Thanks very much. <laughs> Deaconstruction Deconstruction is produced by FI, Philosophy and the History of Ideas Research Team at Deakin University, Australia. For more information, visit blogs, Dot dot edu dot AU slash philosophy.